Welcome back to Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein. We're tackling a big topic this episode, capitalism. You might argue that it's a system as tightly embedded in our daily lives as any other. There's hardly a place on earth that isn't affected by it. In most places, it governs the basic exchange of goods and services, provides the means for that exchange, and offers a set of economic rules by which most of us can agree. It can be credited to a large part for lifting half of the human population out of poverty in only half a century's time. Healthcare and lifestyle innovations did wonders in keeping disease in check. That led to a global population explosion, but corporations responded, building things better, faster, and cheaper, so that everyone could take part in the great capitalist dream. It was all going so swimmingly until it wasn't. Starting in 2005, there were warning signs. By 2007, in the U.S., delinquency rates on subprime lending rose sharply. And at the outset of 2008, the markets were in freefall. What ensued was a global financial crisis, the likes of which the world hadn't seen since the Great Depression. If this retelling strikes you as tiresome, forgive me, but here's the point. It could have been prevented. It's a failing of government regulators who proved unable or unwilling to check the collective power of money interests. In the blink of an eye, capitalism as a means of serving the greater good became the whipping boy of the financial elite. The real question is, can we get it back? Here to discuss it with me is Pietro Ventani, a Singapore-based economist and investment strategist who does some dabbling in early-stage fintech and blockchain ventures. We talked about capitalism's victories and failings, its ability to address new world issues, and how politics and technology are spoiling some of those prospects. All this in less than 35 minutes, so stay tuned. First, a quick thanks to our sponsor, Quilt AI, a mission-first technology company that helps large organizations use the internet more purposefully. It's looking to reverse fractures in society and generate empathy, while helping organizations understand their customers and beneficiaries much better. They give time and money to causes they care about and in service to people and planet. Inside Asia is pleased to be associated with Quilt AI. For more information, do check them out at quilt.ai. Pietro Ventani, thank you so much for joining me on Inside Asia. We're going to dissect capitalism within 35 minutes. I don't think it's ever been done. Are you game to try? <laughs> totally. I'm happy to be here. All right. Well, here, I'm going to start with the big question. What's wrong with capitalism? Well, um, I would say that uh, capitalism has done a fantastic job for the best part of the last uh, 250 years. Um, but I'm not sure if uh, what we have... Uh, at, at this point, is still is still capitalism, uh, or rather some other some other version of another of a system that I think is starting to show uh, its limitations. Mm. Um, is it is this is it the system that's wrong, or the people in power manipulating the system that are wrong? Uh, clearly, the the people, humans, always uh, add their own uh, their own uh, um, you know their own ingredients to the system uh, as it should. But I think in the case of capitalism. We have seen uh, more and more. We have been seeing more and more a system whereby, on the way up, uh, you know, things are fairly, how can I say, uh, uh, meritocratic, and then when uh, uh, things start to go bad, the governments will essentially uh, start to skew the system. Uh, we, we go into a sort of more of a kind of a form of socialism, almost, uh, whereby uh, you know the, the the profits are 
privatized and the losses are socialized. Mm -hmm. So the, essentially, it's no longer a sort of the kind of version of capitalism that, that the theory has, uh, has shown us. When, when did things start to go a little bit uh, pear-shaped? Was there a moment or an event in history that led us to this point? I have no doubt that uh, a particularly important inflection point was the uh, 15 August 1972, when Nixon essentially decided to uh, fully abandon the Bretton Woods system and the gold convertibility that essentially ushered a couple of very important elements added to the system. The first one is what uh, economists call the unconstrained money, meaning that without any uh, sort of, uh, without money being pegged to anything uh, objective, such as gold or something else, governments are able to create uh, unlimited quantity of, of liquidity. And, and then, of course, the other reason was that the other, the other important change was that that unconstrained money enabled uh, essentially unlimited financialization of the global economy, which of course had some, some good, uh, you know, good um, uh, outcomes uh, together with some uh, uh, bad outcomes in the way of a uh, boom and bust uh, sort of kind of debt, debt crisis. Mm. The freeing, freeing up of investment capital, basically. Yes, and um, that was definitely a, a positive that enabled uh, globalization, enabled, uh, in, you know, investment on a, on a scale that we have haven't seen before as a, as a species. Uh, but on the, on the other side, that also, uh, as, as often is the case, uh, incited, uh, uh, again, boom and bust, uh, kind of shorter cycle boom and bust uh, crisis, which were met because of the, uh, uh, the um, abandonment of the gold standard, were met with essentially uh, creation, massive creation of liquidity, essentially the debt problem was was treated with more debt. And I think now we're starting to see, we're starting to a point where that uh, sort of uh, the situation is truly becoming uh, unsustainable. Was there a tipping point uh, in recent history where we just crossed the line and therefore it became more improbable that we could get it back or, or, or control or, or restore some control to the system? I think the the point of no return, in my in my opinion, was the great financial crisis. Um, the uh, clearly there was, although we had already seen, for example, in the case of Japan or in the case of the U.S., we already seen previous crises that were met essentially with uh, with the same recipe. I think the the, the great financial crisis, um, the GFC, uh, was the was the um, you know was a pivotal time because the U.S. government could have. Um, could have met those circumstances in one of two ways. Uh, essentially, one was to uh, essentially let uh, let the financial institutions that were responsible for the crisis fail, and the second was to save them. And obviously, as we all know, they went the latter. And I think that was really for from not just from in terms of uh, you know financial flows and, and moral hazard, but also in in political terms, that was the the cross the Rubicon, if you want, at that point. Are you suggesting that had we taken that bitter pill uh, in 2008 and just whatever structural repercussions came from it, it would have been better for us than had we rescued and bailed out the banks and tried to perpetuate the system that we'd come to know and love? Uh, I, I am very certain. I obviously don't have 100% certainty, but I have very high confidence that if they had let failed to the institution, the, the, the lesson and the, the, the pain 
suffered by the uh, by the investment community would have been so severe that it would have sort of kind of uh, uh, incited a more a more careful management of risk. Essentially, uh, you know, the 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 GFC uh, institutionalized the mispricing of risk in a very, on a very basic level. And I didn't say that uh, former um, former Secretary Treasury Secretary Rubin actually uh, said that. Uh, now, on why that 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 choice was made, I think it's a very interesting uh, political and and to an extent um, cognitive story because the people who made those those choices just actually actually happened to be those policymakers happened to be most contiguous to those institutions that they ended up saving. And again, was it just a coincidence or maybe there was something more? I know we're speculating, but um, you know, might it have accelerated America's decline and China's rise? Uh, had, and, and politically, was that simply seen as untenable? Um, or would the U.S. have rebounded stronger, more resilient, albeit with a higher unemployment level? I think I think the latter. I mean, clearly, the G, the way the GFC was dealt with essentially, um, you know, chopped away, took away a significant part of the a significant sort of element of uh, of uh, uh, moral grounds from the U.S. Because you know, basically, after 2007, 2008, the fact that the U.S. had handled the crisis the way essentially meant that every other country on the planet felt, you know, it was okay for them to do the same thing. Whenever, you know, policymakers, whenever they see, they saw the opportunity to do that. So I think definitely would have been actually. By the way, there is really no. We have no way to say whether for the people in the street, um, a different approach to solving that crisis would have been better or worse. My sense is that probably. With the right policy, with the right policies in place, it would have been either the same or possibly better. Mm. Uh, clearly, would have been a lot worse for for the investment community and for those institutions that end up essentially being made whole uh, as a result of the decision taken. If our capitalist system has the capacity to allow for unconstrained debt, um, is it possible that capitalism also has the means? To, to build back, to bring back and use certain levers to reconstitute what capitalism was intended to be from the outset. Uh, you see, the problem, Steve, the, the inherent contradiction uh, is that if, if we were to adopt you know, a reasonably pure capitalist system, you would have to have at least as much failure, as much as success. And instead, the, the moment that you remove the uh, the, the, the system of merit, essentially you remove capitalism. That's why I'm saying that we're no longer in a, in a capitalistic society. We haven't been uh, for, for, for decades, uh, simply because, uh, um, you know, you, again, there is reward on the way up and there is no uh, punishment or, or consequences on the way down. Um, now, I said, obviously, the GFC was, was a pivotal point, but I would say that COVID-19 has probably even more massively accelerated the process. And we have just seen essentially that uh, governments, not just the US government, but I would say most governments around the world have no 
um, um, sort of uh, hesitation whatsoever to deploy unlimited amount of liquidity to essentially save um, companies, institution, regardless of whether they need to be saved from a from a uh, from a meritocratic standpoint. So, so it's almost as if we've been scrambling around, um, plugging holes in the dike, uh, trying to keep back the water, but eventually it's weakened. And, and that weakening of the system is something that you're most concerned about, I, I suspect. Yes, I, I think that the, the dam is considerably weakened. In fact, I'm not, to be honest, I'm not even sure there is a dam anymore. Uh, the, 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 the problem is that when, when government uh, starts to play the kind of role in, in, a, in an economy, in a country that, that we see governments playing these days, I think uh, we are in a, in a system that can no longer be, um, you know, called a sort of a, you know, market-driven system anymore. So that, that's really where we are. Can, can we uh, call any lessons from history? Can we derive any insights from perhaps other uh, forms of capitalism, uh, forms of free enterprise that allowed for adjustments based on uh, maybe, um, you know, uh, uh, enlightened thinking among the, the populace. Are there, are there examples, for instance, I mean, you're Italian and you're uh, also an economist. Talk to me about the Venetian Republic. Yes, the, the, the if obviously, I think history is, a, um, is an especially important source of insight to understand and navigate the present and the future obviously with the due with the due sort of uh, uh, changes and understanding how the context has changed and, and, and how also we are different from a cognitive standpoint but going back to your question the the most for the most successful form of representative government that we can see in history is the Venetian Republic the Venetian Republic is it's an incredible incredible story of uh, you know the, the the triumph of the human spirit truly, and uh, they lasted almost a thousand years, and uh, they essentially were born out of the most uh, dear tragedy because essentially Venetians were people that were fleeing away from uh, barbarians, from uh, from sure death of enslavement, uh, and they found uh, refuge literally in the, in the middle of the sea, and essentially they they turned what it was. was you know, almost uh, inhabitable, uh, uh, um, you know, land into one of the most successful city-states in history and, and empires, I would say, in history. So they lasted a thousand years. How did they do that? I would like to use a couple of, uh, a couple of elements behind that success. First and foremost, they uh, managed their they, they sort of managed to change and adapt their political institutions so to... Uh, essentially stay clear of something that would otherwise be um, virtually assured, which was an authoritarian kind of a turn into a monarchy. Uh, How did they do that? Was that the merchant capitalist elite which were able to kind of conjure the right support through the political interests? Because I know they were pulled between the Roman Catholic Church and, you know, other other uh, monarchies. Uh, how did they, was it money that gave them the strength to do it? Or is it their position in the world or their, or their, uh, the, the fact that they were great seafaring people? Well, I, you know, I like to believe it's never money or, you know, of course, sometimes geography is, is important. Uh, but, but in this case, I think geography 
played to their disadvantage as much as their advantage. I think the reasons for their success it was really human ingenuity and the, and the desire, the, the belief that they were uh, unique and they were uh, in a way entitled to be independent. And uh, you're absolutely right. The history of Venice in the history of straddling between, uh, uh, you know, among a number of uh, sort of uh, larger and, uh, and sometimes more powerful players. Um, but two, two elements I think are particularly important. Uh, one is the, the, the political institutions. First and foremost, we need to understand that the concept that we have today of universal suffrage and democracy is, is a very recent. Even looking at the United States of America, which is, you know, 250-year-old democracy, we need to understand that uh, the, 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 the political system was born with a very, very limited uh, uh, voting rights. Uh, so in other words, the, in 1776, actually the country on the planet that America was the closest to, uh, the nation on the planet that was closest to was actually the Republic of Venice. In fact, Robert, um, in fact Benjamin Franklin, the first letter that Benjamin Franklin uh, sent out to uh, uh, a foreign state was to Republic of Venice to be recognized and said, basically, we are like, we're now like you. We would like you to acknowledge our, our uh, um, sovereignty. Um, so, so they managed to essentially maintain a system, a representative system, being very mindful of what the pitfalls and the risks were, and they managed to adapt and, and tweak their institutions to maintain the system reasonably open and reasonably free. And then the second reason was they, uh, uh, they were able to maintain their currency, the, the Venetian uh, Ducat. As, as a stable and, and a widely used uh, reserve currency. Mm. Uh, I, I'm particular, as an economist, I'm particularly fascinated by the uh, parallel between uh, political change and uh, um, monetary, monetary history. We can see invariably that whenever there is monetary disorder, there is political disorder. And uh, there is a very close correlation between the stability of a currency and, and, and the stability and to an extent the, uh, the role in the system of the country uh, where the currency is, uh, is uh, minted. So the, the, the Venetian, uh, for close to a thousand years, uh, the Venetian Republic, very successful, was also so because of their, uh, the, the, their coinage was accepted as a, as a mean of exchange and as a store of value throughout, throughout the world. Yeah. Uh, we have many similar uh, examples in history. We obviously the whole history of the Roman Empire arguably can be can be is paralleled by the uh, the fate and the uh, ups and down of their of their currency. Uh, we can look at the uh, Florence. Uh, Florence, I think, is almost like the the the. It's fascinating because the 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 the, the florin, which was the the golden coin of Florence from 1252 to 1533, had essentially the same content of gold, the moment that change also was the end mm -hmm. of the uh, Florentine sort of uh, uh, signoria, quote-unquote, republic as, as we knew it, uh, and also the, the place of Florence in the world. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating to see how coinage really mirrors the uh, political destiny. And we're seeing... No, and so I'm hearing two things. Um, one is recognition of a stable currency in all cases. And the other thing I'm hearing is 
practical adaptation, the ability to be flexible, to adjust when circumstances shift in order to maintain the system that they all honor and respect, even if it was to the degree that certain individual families or interests might suffer in the short term. Is that, do I have that right? Uh, you do. I mean, you have to, at the end of the day, I think any community has to, whether it's, you know, it's a large country or it's a small city-state, any community has to rely on rules which have to be, to a degree, uh, impartial. To, because the moment that you start to see uh, um, an obvious bias and an obvious uh, uh, sort of uh, unbalance in those rules, then, then you start to look at uh, a different type of system and a far less cohesive system as well. I think cohesion, to an extent, actually more and more, if you look again at history, we can see the history is also, it's not just a history of political institution and, and monetary systems, but also is a, is a history of cohesion. Mm. And uh, we have, uh, as a society, we have become more and more cohesive. Uh, that seems to be sort of, uh, you know, what someone calls the, the arrow of history. And you can have a cohesive society without objective rules that, that, that must be um, applicable to everyone, regardless of uh, their wealth or regardless of their position in society. Mm. There's a lot of um, um, noise out there about, uh, and, and whether this is just rhetorical or practical, I don't know, but just uh, it's time capitalism's day is done. Um, you know, it's run its course, it's served us well, it's time to throw it out and, and look for something else. But nobody seems to be coming up with a strong alternative system. Um, I guess my question is, are there, does capitalism still have a few tricks up its sleeve? Or is it really the political will to pull it back um, using practical and even painful methods of restoring some semblance of order to it, to it? Or are we past the point of no return, in your opinion? I think we're past the point of return because the uh, because of because of technology has really enabled uh, forms of uh, uh, economic uh, systems that essentially uh, made make uh, um, society a lot more um, I can say exposed a lot a lot more vulnerable to uh, to being game to be manipulated. So we need really, I think we get to a point where we need to find, we're already probably in a post-capitalist society and we need to find uh, somewhat of a new system to uh, allocate uh, wealth and to allocate uh, uh, added value in a, in a way that is uh, uh, fair and, and, um, and I think profoundly different from what we have adopted again over the last 250 years. Yeah, let's pause on that point of technology. Um, it, it's both undermined and benefited the system. Can you talk about, you know, and, and you, you mentioned manipulation. Are you referencing social media and some of the means by which organizations that have the power have used those platforms in order to secure that power? Is that what you're referring to? Uh, yes, clearly, as always, uh, technology clearly is one of the, you know, is at the center of the of the of the human experience as we know it. And as always, technology is inherently neutral. Uh, technology comes with uh, tremendous uh, promises and opportunities, but also comes with, uh, with risk. 
And obviously, uh, we have seen that over and over when it comes to, uh, for example, weapons or when it comes to uh, uh, any any tool that uses technology as always can always be used in a, in 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 a, in a positive way for for society or, or in a negative, destructive way. Uh, clearly, uh, I think we got to a point where uh, technology enables uh, monopolies to a way that is unprecedented. And the reason why it's unprecedented is because those monopolies not only can be created, but also they can maintain and control in a, in a way that, that that becomes extremely difficult, that makes it extremely difficult to, to reverse. Mm. Um, however, as always, technology also is providing us with potentially with the tools to operate the shift to 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 re-engineer to to change the system to something that I think it's a lot more it could be a lot more um, um, suitable for for the future mm-hmm. you, you we've again we've been here before uh, we've seen monopolistic tendencies the robber barons the, the great industrial uh, giants um, those that were broken up um, by by the US government at some stage um, and then you know to re to, to flatten the order and create again innovation and growth are we in a position now with some of the big technology companies, particularly the Facebooks and Googles of the world, to do something similar? Or because it's it's surpassed our domestic border, the U.S. borders, and gone global, is it a force now unto itself? So, so first and foremost, you're absolutely right. The, 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 the global nature of these monopolies make essentially, uh, you know, local governments unfit. To deal with them, so there's obviously a huge issue, which whether be is also applies to other problems such as environment, uh, uh, you know, pandemics, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So clearly, the the nation state form seems to be unable to uh, effectively cope with uh, some of the problems that we're facing today that are na- that are global in nature. Um, but I think I have frankly very little confidence that uh, the governments can uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, rein in. Um, um, uh, technology monopolies, and and the reason is very simply that the um, the power that these companies wage and the resources that they have access to it's it's is so massively larger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not just talking about money; I'm talking about intellectual capital. I'm talking about uh, you know access to legal resources, etc. So to me, uh, we we really need to the best way to take society to the next level is really to uh, re-engineer the, the processes in which uh, processing, you know, the, the processes in which, you know, uh, goods and services are, are uh, created and the value that accrues to this, to this creation are distributed across society. Yeah, well, you've raised something, which is, you know, how we've applied technology processes, innovations in order to achieve certain things, which is more stuff. You know, the capitalist, materialistic, um, uh, consumer-based economies have brought us to a point where, um, you know, the earth is now squirming. We've we've got uh, this kind of lack of regenerative technologies. Um, we've got this extraction uh, view that um, actually is creating so much damage and harm to the world that perhaps fundamentally we need to rethink how we're applying our technologies and to what ends. Um, can we? It's clearly, I, I don't believe anyone can argue that we can sustain this consumer-based uh, economic growth and for the next 40, 50 years. If it's not that, what is it? 
obviously this is this is an extremely important and, and, and complex question but and I'm I, hoping you have the answer well on a very basic level I think the answer can be summarized into one word which is decentralization so we need to start to look at economic political you know to an extent to an extent cognitive process and and uh, and move from a kind of a centralized to a decentralized uh, paradigm. Why will that make a difference? Well, first and foremost, because decentralization essentially massively decreased the scope for corruption, which is, as we know, endemic, cognitively endemic uh, to our species. In other words, we are fundamentally economics being, and therefore we will always be uh, uh, tempted to, uh, to skew the system to our uh, maximum economic benefits. Number one. Number two, also because decentralizing um, not only helps to, um, you know, better distribute the economic outcome, outcome of, our, of human activities, but also allows to better distribute the, uh, what, what are called the, the, the externalities of the same system. So the moment that we are all participating on the good side and the negative side of the choices that we make every day, I think that will bring about the kind of uh, individual interest and the kind of alignment between the interest of the collective and the interest of the individual. That is what is missing today in the way of you know, ESG uh, and, and a lot of the problems that we face today. So decentralization in terms of corporate power or commercial power or, or political power as well? Uh, all of the above, but what I'm referring to is really decentralizing the processes. Mm. So we have, for example, let's take uh, maybe what I think is one of the, if not the most, one of the most successful enterprises uh, um, today, uh, uh, remarkable companies in many ways, which is Amazon. Um, Amazon is is very successful and uh, you know incredibly incredibly powerful, but it's also very centralized in the way obviously it's managed. It's a traditional company with you know relatively uh, centralized management. In fact, the ownership, as we know, all these companies they have a dual share structure. So meaning that essentially there is a, a very small sometimes. You know, less than a handful of people that essentially control the company. Nothing wrong with that. We have been going about with the system for a few centuries. It served us very well. I'm just suggesting maybe it's time to look at the different kind of system. So let's imagine Amazon on a decentralized platform, essentially uh, a system that uh, capitalizes on technology that already exists to do exactly all the things that Amazon is already doing, which is obviously e-commerce, you know, cloud computing, uh, advertising, data management, etc. So a decentralized system would be a system where every participant on the platform, whether you are, you know, a small company selling goods, whether you are, um, you know, a big company selling goods, or you are a customer of their uh, uh, of their of their e-commerce operation or or uh, a customer to their uh, video platform, you are providing but also receiving value mm. from anything that happens on the platform. So you are essentially a participant. You are you are a full stakeholder, not just a stakeholder as in okay, I'm on the receiving end of something bad that 
some externality, negative externality of the of the pub, but you're also on the receiving end of the value created. And why shouldn't be that the case, given the fact that participating on the platform actually is accretive of the value of the platform itself? To, to some degree, isn't that what shareholding is all about? If you are, if you own shares in a company, you're participating. Well, you perhaps it used to be. If you look at you know the first a few joint stock companies in the Netherlands and in, in, in the UK, this would be often people, uh, you know, ship owners or uh, people merchants. Uh, but but obviously we have lost that that the level of uh, participation and. So it's institutional ownership now is displaced it's, kind of individual. I would say I would say more than institution versus individual. I would say it's really asset owner versus uh, non-asset owner. So in other words, um, uh, clearly going back to the Amazon example, company, by the way, for which I have a tremendous amount of admiration, I think Jeff Bezos is going to go down to history as possibly one of the most phenomenal entrepreneurs of our time. Uh, but going back to Amazon, essentially you see that Amazon creates tremendous amount of value, but the value is essentially appropriated by a relatively small subset of participants yeah. rather than rather than you know a larger larger sort of uh, uh, sectors of society and again I'm not just talking about wage earners I'm not just talking about people working at Amazon I'm talking about society at large yeah. so it goes beyond just working at Amazon well a Amazon has been a beneficiary of the system we created so they haven't done anything other than try to optimize processes centralize uh, you know economies of scale at all points Walmart did the same thing Walmart did so uh, to the demise of the small mom-and-pop operations not only in the United States but around the world to some degree right so the central they are centralizing the whole idea of, of you know where you buy your, your goods and services uh, the malls that have come up I mean it, it's, it's almost like you're saying we need to reverse ourselves. We need to go back. I, I mean, I'm almost envisioning in my head a series of a network of tens of thousands of hamlets that are largely self-sufficient, self slightly interdependent only on certain goods and services, but basically um, localized. Is, is that what you're suggesting? Well, first of all, there's nothing wrong with, with what Walmart and Amazon have done. I'm just saying it doesn't really serve uh, you know, human society as, 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 in fact, actually, you can argue that it has some sort of, you know, second and third order consequences, which are very negative. But again, this should not be, uh, you know, ascribed to the, the intention of these companies. Companies do what companies need to do. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm, I'm suggesting... No, no, but you make an interesting point here, and I want to push on it, yes. push back, yes. which is for, for the last 50, 60 years, no problem. We had certain objectives. Everybody agreed to them. Political systems supported it. Uh, regulations were there. To, but, but now we've arrived at a point where as we started this conversation, we said the system is broken. You know, it's no longer functioning. Um, the earth is, is in trouble. Um, resources are constrained. Uh, you know, income disparities are growing. Um, it, 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 so so it's, not, it's not that they've done anything wrong, but it does seem to me that they need to fundamentally reorient themselves towards a different goal, which isn't being efficient and profitable at all cost, but providing services or benefits for humanity in new and creative ways. Yes, what I'm suggesting is that that outcome that you just mentioned, in my view, cannot be accomplished through centralized planning or centralized 
organizational structures. Mm. We need to, on a very basic level, we need to align the interest. And when I say interest, I'm talking, you know, economic and first and foremost interest of individuals with the interest of the collective. Yeah. That's the only way to move on to the next phase of, uh, you know, next and better phase of our uh, human community. Uh, going back to the corporate example, I think that a, cor uh, a, a, a decentralized corporate structure essentially turns every user into a stakeholder and a participant. And of course, you know, there are differences. If you are, you know, a very successful, for example, company selling, you know, fantastic uh, goods or services on the platform, you should participate, you should appropriate of a larger share. No question with that. But nonetheless, even if I just someone that buys, uh, you know, I'll make another example, which I think is extremely interesting, content. Look at YouTube. Again, fantastic company. You know, Google, needless to say, up there with Amazon. But clearly, you have mass massive disparity. So the value that, that YouTube create on a very broad level for Google, only a sliver of the value accrues to the users. In yeah. fact, actually, you can argue that users just contribute value just by virtual watching whether it's because you know, they create an advertising opportunity, whether they create data for profiling, whatever. But, but essentially, anybody that, if you, if you think about a YouTube on a decentralized platform, which again is something that technology enables today, we're not talking something that doesn't exist, uh, the value uh, should accrue to each and every viewer. Mm. Obviously in different ways, in different, different shares depending on, on what you do by participating. Yeah, the uh, economist Jeremy Rifkin refers to it as the collective commons, I believe, and he argues something similar where, you know, we all kind of arrive at a point where we're participating in the system versus being held uh, ransom by it. Um, it it's, it's a broader and bigger discussion. I hope we can come back and talk about this uh, because there is so much more to go on. But I love the fact that we've teased out the idea that there can we can work within the system as we understand it, but reorient it towards different goals, different objectives and dis different structures. So I thank you, uh, Pietro, for joining me here today. And uh, let's get back together and Absolutely. talk more. Thank you, Steve. Uh, my pleasure. That was my conversation with Singapore-based economist and investment strategist Pietro Ventani. Clearly, there's more to be said on the subject. Capitalism's run is far from over. But as our conversation revealed, there are no shortage of big changes that need to take place in order for the system we've come to know and love to survive. The central question is this, are the rules of capitalism built around the wrong endgame? If in the past the goal was growth, profit, and prosperity, all noble causes, what are the new set of objectives that deliver something better but on different terms? How does sustainability, regeneration, financial inclusion, and equality strike you? also noble causes, right? Some might argue these were part and parcel of the original vision for capitalism. For reasons we won't go into here, it all started to fray at the edges under a perfect storm of demands. Wall Street wanted higher profits. Companies wanted talent and resources using price competition to drive up prices and generate new levels of income disparity. Governments, meanwhile, were branded enemy of the people. Shrink government, argued pro-business pundits, and you could lower taxes, Problem solved. Not hardly. 
Fast forward and the capitalist residue left behind from 50 years of breakneck growth and consumerism is enough to cloud the landscape, but not enough to rescue us from a new set of challenges exacted by the very system that got us here in the first place. Is it time to redraw the lines of capitalism? We have within our means the institutions, mechanisms, and means to move the levers of industry. What we're lacking is the will to do so. What we need is a unified front. Consumers need to consume less and demand more in terms of corporate and government accountability. Governments need to make laws to first and foremost protect people and planet. And companies must stop binging on Earth's resources and instead employ sustainable solutions to save us all from ourselves. Only then does capitalism have a fighting chance. Okay, I've oversimplified, I know. But if ever there were a time for creative macro-level economic solutions, this is it. Pietro makes a case for decentralization. He says that years of consolidation have put too much power in the hands of too few. The Amazons, Walmarts, and FedExes of the world are efficiency machines, but they've also unwound millions of community-based businesses that used to sell you your groceries and deliver your mail. By relocalizing, we have a chance of rebuilding a job base, improving infrastructure, and ensuring greater social cohesion. Pietro dreams of a capitalism that turns every paying customer into a full-fledged participant in the organization he or she subscribes to. He sees a kinder, gentler form of capitalism that honors its founding principles, but extends its benefits to address the kind of 21st century problems that will plague us into the grave unless the system we know best turns around and gives something back. That's it for this week's episode. What's your take on the future of capitalism? Let us know by leaving us a message on any of our LinkedIn, Facebook, or Instagram pages. Thanks for joining us here on Inside Asia. Please share our program with friends and colleagues. We're entering our third season with over 170 episodes produced and available to you free of charge. Each week, we plan to introduce a new topic or trend that shows how innovation and corporate purpose can align and profitably. Prefer reading to listening? Then subscribe to the Inside Asia newsletter. Visit us at www.insideasiaadvisors.com. Leave your name and email address, then start receiving weekly updates that highlight key points from the discussion, provide links to additional insights and articles, and reference earlier podcasts on related subjects. As always, we thank you for listening.